Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we had a lot of discussion here in Ontario for a while on a variety of issues. The question that arises, who has the premier's ear? The answer is lobbyists, and we'll tell you what that's all about in a few minutes. In federal politics, the prime minister says there will be an inquiry into foreign interference, but only after there's a buy-in from all the opposition leaders. Interesting idea for cannabis stores, and I say interesting, it's it's what the businesses are all doing anyway, except them, let them advertise, let them show stuff in the front window. That's against the law for them now. And mortgages, Canadian homeowners are struggling these days with rocketing interest rates, and we'll talk about what the options are. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've had a lot of discussion here in Ontario over the last uh, while about uh, with especially to do with issues like the green belt and and even how our our health system here seems to be moving more and more towards uh private uh in accommodations and, and and clinics and things of this nature and and the question we ask a lot of the time is well just who has the premier's ear uh who is he listening to well uh, the short answer to that is lobbyists, uh, and and it's okay. It's all part of the, the system, and it's it's quite legal as long as you're registered, etc. Uh, but who is doing it, and how often they've been doing it because of some of these issues, uh, is a rather fascinating picture. And uh, uh, our first guest has uh, been doing a lot of research into this, and uh, well, basically, lobbyists are targeting Ontario health uh, most of all uh, when it comes to some of the Ford government policies. Uh, the author of the piece, uh, I like. Isaac Callen uh, is a journalist with Global News, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Isaac, thank you for the time. Good to have we on the program today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. And as I said in, our, in my preamble here, this is this is all on the up and up. I mean, I know, hey, you know, as long as you're registered and, and say, this is what I do, I'm going to lobby. Uh, I know there are some restrictions about who can do it and who can, et cetera, like that. Uh, but the number of lobbyists and the the occurrences of this have gone up significantly in, since the Ford government has uh, has taken office, haven't they? Yeah, and so the, the Integrity Commission's report came out a couple of days ago. That summarizes the annual lobbying activity in Ontario. And you're right, the number of lobbyists overall is up, and particularly around health, which I found very interesting. The number of people lobbying Ontario health over the last year is up around 50%. Um, and I think that is something that is is worth paying attention to, because this last year, the 2022 to 2023 year, is a year in which we saw the Ford government put through major changes to healthcare in Ontario, arguably the biggest changes in the last decade to how we run healthcare in this province. And so I think it's very interesting that we see Ontario Health, which is the crown corporation, the sort of arm's length government body that runs most of the healthcare systems in Ontario. It doesn't run hospitals themselves, but it runs most of the back end healthcare. It's in charge of a lot of major healthcare decisions. It manages the province's 60 billion plus healthcare budget. Uh, last year, we saw lobbying of Ontario Health up about 50%, and we saw it ranked as the most lobbied Crown organizations are so not the most lobbied ministry, but the most uh, lobbied government body uh, and sort of the biggest target. So I think every year when this comes out, it's interesting to see, as you say, who is pushing for what. And then you can compare in real life to what you think they might be achieving. But um, very interesting that health is, is a top topic in a year that it was a top topic for the government uh, policy and decisions as well. Well, and as you say, some rather radical changes to our healthcare system here in Ontario. And I guess the the you know for questions like, uh, well, who are these lobbyists and what are they lobbying for? Uh, is is it fair to say maybe it's it's reflected in the policies that are adopted uh, uh, through this government? In other words, as you say, the radical changes to healthcare is is that because of of the the insistence by some lobbyists and maybe the pressure by some lobbyists to to move in that direction? <laughs> 
I think it's always a bit of a, a chicken and egg situation because in, in the year when they make those big healthcare changes, you could argue that that is the point at which lobbyists say, okay, you're making these changes. I want to make sure that my client is reflected in these changes and is getting what they want from them. So if the Ford government last year, I think, is a very good example of this because they spent most of the year signaling those changes. The Bill 60, which passed uh, quite recently in, in May, I believe, and made those changes to healthcare. It allowed uh, for more hip and knee replacements to take place outside of hospital. It allowed for cataract surgeries to take place in private clinics. It basically in, in increased the role of the private sector in healthcare. That bill passed you know, in the spring of this year, and it was introduced and announced in January of this year. But that legislation has been trailed for months before that. In the summer, during August, the health minister was talking regularly about the role that private healthcare would be playing in her government's plans to clear the surgical backlog. So it, one of these things is, it's always a question you have to ask, and this often comes down to looking at the individual lobby records and when each lobbyist registered. But did that lobbyist register because they could hear those signs, they could hear the Ford government signaling that on the back of the pandemic, major change was coming to healthcare? Or did some of that major change come to healthcare because for the last number of years, lobbyists have been pushing healthcare. So this year, for example, uh, healthcare was the second most lobbied topic in Ontario, behind only trade and uh, economic activity, which is sort of the most obvious category, I think, to be lobbied every year. Uh, last year, the year before the one I'm reporting on now, that was healthcare was also the most lobbied topic. So it, it's always been a popular topic. And the third most lobbied topic um, was the pandemic. So it's always top of mind for lobbyists, I think. But the change this year is that Ontario Health, the organization in charge of the budget, in charge of the spending, shot up the lobbying of crown organizations going from fourth the previous year to first this year. So I think they've always lobbyists have always been pushing for some of these changes. It's always been something that's on their mind. But maybe as the Ford government announced those changes this year, we've seen more targeted lobbying of Ontario Health, which is actually in charge of spending that money. It's interesting in that you make a very, very uh, important point here about the impact that they're having. And and I guess, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, you can say that, well, conservatives, I mean, small C conservative thinkers, uh, would tend to move to the private sector as they have with a lot of other things. They always think government spends too much money and, and the private sector should take over that. So, so that was there maybe as the foundation. But it, it seems as if as, as soon as a conservative government got elected here in Ontario, all of a sudden this increases. It's almost as if those people were of that mindset and some of these private companies figured, okay, it's our turn now. Uh, game on. You know, this this is a government that's probably going to be receptive to these ideas. Let's get working on it. And they certainly have, haven't they? Well, I think Ontario Health itself is a very interesting example of this because Ontario Health was a super agency created by the Ford government in 2019, it absorbed things like Cancer Care Ontario, eHealth Ontario, Health Force Ontario, which uh, deals with recruitment and things like that. So the, the fact that Ontario Health itself has shot up the lobbying and is a target of lobbyists is interesting because it was a super body created by the Ford government to oversee these budgets and to oversee these major changes. Again, the, the government hasn't been shy about the changes they've been planning to make to healthcare. Mm. I think you can argue even before the pandemic, during that kind of first couple of years of the Ford government, healthcare was very much in the crossroads. Ford was saying he felt it was inefficient. The, the creation of Ontario Health was specifically because the government argued that health was badly managed. It needed more efficiencies. It was bloated. So that, I think, is, is almost a moth to flame as well, that you know the Ontario government says this is an area that we think we need to improve. This is an area where we think we benefit from the private sector's efficiency. 
And so I think that is one reason that you would then see lobbyists flock to it, along with the fact that health is the biggest line item in the province. The government doesn't spend more money on anything in Ontario than it does on health. So if you are a private company or you are a private lobbyist, that is where the most public funding is available. And then I think I should probably caveat as well, to be fair, to say that equally, if you are a cancer research charity, the same rules apply. You still need to register your lobbyist. So when mm -hmm. a lobbyist register, um, is targeting an organization, some of those, not the majority, but some of those will be charities and nonprofits and things like that as well. I suppose that for full disclosure is important to put out there as well. Uh, I've got limited time here, I know, and I appreciate you jumping in with us today. Uh, the, as, uh, according to your story here on the global webpage here, uh, the second most lobby government agency was uh, independent electricity system operators, uh, which I find interesting because uh, even as recently as about six, eight months ago, uh, the government, the Ford government seems to have had a renewed interest in, in electricity uh, generation, for instance. Uh, you know, at one point they had talked about mothballing on the, the nuclear plants and Pickering and other places. Uh, but all of a sudden, there seemed to be a change of, of, of opinion then. Now. now they're interested in nuclear. Now they're talking about gas plants and things that they didn't even have on their radar, uh, which indicates that, that that was a pretty aggressive lobbyist group that, that seemed to be having some sort of an impact on Ford policy there. Again, I think it's a really interesting one where you compare the lobbying activity to the news cycle, because I think mm -hmm. yeah. a year ago, a lot of people wouldn't have heard of the IESO. And this year, it's been in the news very, very regularly. Last September, we heard exactly about Pickering. And then a month later, we saw um, announcements about gas plants. And uh, in sort of some separate reporting, we, we've looked at this. And we know that the way that they announced the extension of Pickering uh, into 2026 was part of a was at least part of the benefit for the government of that was to dampen the news that they would be increasing gas plants to make them look a little bit more environmentally friendly. We obtained a communications plan that showed Pickering was part of a plan to maybe sanitize the idea that they'll be increasing the number of gas plants. But from a lobbying point of view, it, exactly, the increased number of gas plants that are going to be used in Ontario energy for the next number of years to avoid brownouts and to avoid blackouts are an economic opportunity. Um, and they're one that I think requires a lot of lobbying because to build a gas plant in a city is a very, very difficult thing for a company to get past a local government and a provincial government. You've got to really get your optics just right. But when you do get them just right, there's a lot of money available in gas-powered uh, ele electrical generation. So I think as an indication of what lobbyists can achieve and where they, they target their time, I think this IESO being the second most targeted is quite, uh, is quite telling because it shows where companies want to put their priorities and the fact that People are gearing up. We already know in Windsor, for example, the council is being lobbied pretty hard to accept a massive expansion to their gas facility as part of these changes. On the other end, you have the city of Toronto passing motions saying they don't want any more gas power. So if you are a company looking to make your money in the electrical sector, you would definitely be sending your lobbyists to the government in the last year to get their help getting those things over the line because a push from the provincial government even to city council to say, we need you to take on a little bit more gas power. That goes a long way. And I think you can understand what those lobbyists are trying to achieve and why maybe in the last year they've been pushing a bit harder to achieve it. 
I, I know as I was reading your story on this, I mean, it kind of conjured up uh, ghosts of gas plant scandals of the past with the previous government, the McGinney government, uh, that got pretty ugly. But then they seem to switch. And I guess they, a lot of lobbyists, of course, with, with alternative energy sources. And now we seem to have come full circle and back into these two. And it seems to be having an impact. Uh, great reporting on this stuff, Isaac. Thank you so much for uh, the work that you did on this. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Thanks for having me on again, Bill. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The MPs, of course, are on their uh, summer break now. Uh, and when they get back uh, in the third week of September, they're going to try to pick up on a number of uh, issues that uh, were left undone. One of them, and probably one of the most controversial, is the uh, supposed inquiry uh, into foreign interference in Canadian politics. So, you know, that didn't go well, of course, when Prime Minister appointed uh, rapporteur David Johnson, the former governor general, uh, and that didn't last long. Uh, he did, by the way, as a sidebar issue, just issued his final report uh, earlier this week. Uh, but it's apparently it's uh, top secret. Nobody's allowed to see that except uh, the government and the opposition leaders, if they so required. But anyway, where do we go forward on this? Uh, it seemed as if there were some negotiations by the government and the opposition parties uh, to try to find a consensus. And yesterday, the uh, prime minister, when asked about this, uh, said that, yeah, there'll be an inquiry, but not until there's a buy-in from all the opposition parties. Uh, I don't know just how practical that is to, to suggest that could happen. Check that with our next guest. Uh, he is uh, Wayne Petrosi, who is a professor at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. Professor, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh Good to listen. Let me ask you right up front. I mean, I saw the clip uh, with the prime minister in the Q and A there when he made this statement about trying to get a buy-in. But given the uh, well, as David Johnson referred to it in his, his resignation letter, the highly partisan atmosphere in Ottawa these days, uh, is there any chance at all that there is going to be a consensus among the parties as to how to move forward here? You know, I think there actually may end up being a consensus. I think what the prime minister has done is said, "Listen, you think." Our selection's too partisan? Okay, you put forward names. And I think by so doing, he's put the onus back on, on the opposition collectively to let some air out of the room, take away some of that hyperpartisanship, and by all means, give us names that you think are nonpartisan to a degree that you could accept the leadership role this individual or individuals might play in an inquiry. So uh, there, I think the, the he's, I don't blame him for what he's done, the prime minister. Uh, and now let's see if they can come up with something. Well, I know uh, the person who seems to be pushing back most on this, of course, and not surprisingly is Pierre Polyev. Uh, suggesting, no, no, this, the government has to give us some uh, a plan as to what they want. Uh, I, I'm just wondering if, if the, the rationale behind Mr. Polyev's th thought here is, um, I, I, I play I play offense. You, you give me the ideas and I'll criticize them and tell you why it's a lousy idea, but don't ask me for ideas myself uh, because I can't criticize my own ideas. Yeah, I, He's just seemingly looking for a way uh, to try to scuttle this thing before it starts. He wants it, and he, that's what he says he wants anyway. Uh, but he doesn't seem to want to, to be part of the process to actually evaluate how this is going to move forward. No, that, that's that's true. And, and I think he's he's painted himself into a bit of a corner, Polyev has. I mean, the, the, the reality is, if he can't name one individual that he and his colleagues would accept as nonpartisan, then how does one go about launching an inquiry if it, from the moment of its birth, it's going to be attacked 
in that fashion by at least one party. Now, the interesting thing is that in the, in the conversations that have taken place, both the Bloc Québécois and the NDP have, have said, okay, I think we can work with this and come up with the names or names that that we can that we can accept in a leadership role in this inquiry. And and so he's probably has isolated himself. That's the irony of this. Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. it's self-inflicted. Uh, and it seems like he, they didn't anticipate that Mr. Trudeau would say, oh, okay, our choice is too partisan. Okay, I'll, I'll sit back and, and I'm happy to hear your ideas of who we should pick. And they've, and that, to your point, I mean, just before they, they rose for the summer, uh, both the bloc leader and the NDP leader seemed to indicate that they thought there was real progress being made and that a deal was imminent until Mr. Polyev seemed to let the air out of that balloon. Yes, that's true. And and, and I think uh, the Conservatives got caught flat-footed and didn't anticipate that this would be the direction that, if you like, phase two of this inquiry into foreign interference, uh, th- that it would it would head in this direction, and uh, consequently, he's now kind of out there alone, uh, trying to sort out, you know, uh, on the one hand their insistence this is a critical issue that must be investigated, on the other hand their complete unwillingness to name a single individual that they think would pass the test of being not sufficiently nonpartisan to head up this this inquiry, so. You know, they're going to have to, he's going to have to either hope this all goes away over the summer and he can forget or the public will forget the zigzags in conservative approach to this issue. Uh, but I'm, and by the way, that may very well be the case. Uh, Canadians got a lot of things now that are more top of mind the economy, mortgage rates, uh, inflation. These are issues that I think. Uh, Canadians are more tuned in on and to and want government to do something about than this inquiry. And and as is the usual of the case, I guess, in, in federal government especially, uh, it, it's not the Prime Minister and Mr. Pauly across the table from each other trying to figure this out. They're, they're, they're underlings, other people in the party. I know Dominic LeBlanc seems to be carrying the ball for the government on this with those negotiations. I'm not sure who the Conservative or the NDP or the Bloc uh, people are that are at the table there too. But it just seems as if, if it's when, when they go back to their leader, Mr. Pauly is, is is the one that seems to be holding things up here. He did mention, though, that he, what he wants to do, uh, what he wants the prime minister to do is is officially declare that there will be an inquiry. Then he says he may take part in, in choosing of a leader and setting the parameters. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, though, isn't it? Does it, does it really matter? Is it that important in, in from a standpoint of process? No, it isn't. In fact, it, it's, it's really a non-issue in terms of process. It's just a way for Mr. Polyev to uh, deflect and to evade having to do what he insisted the government needs to do. Identify someone who's sufficiently nonpartisan to enjoy the confidence of all the parties in the House. And it seems that he can't name anybody. And yet he wants to always leave it in a situation where it's the government that fails to name someone nonpartisan. Too clever by half sometimes that fellow is. 
<laughs> well, and it follow right along the path that he seems to be developing here, and that is that everything that's wrong with us in, in Canada these days is the fault of Justin Trudeau. I mean, he's blamed the housing prices, he's blamed weather, he's blamed just about everything on, on the prime minister. I'm not so sure that a lot of people are buying that now, but that seems to be what's going on. But you mentioned something a second ago. I wanted you to uh, embellish just a bit. Uh, that it's going to be a few months, as you say. We have other priorities right now, and that's that's not to belittle the importance of foreign interference, certainly. But is this issue going to fizzle by the time they get back to work in September? Uh, I would think that that's certainly Mr. Polyev's calculation, and he leaves himself in the position where he can constantly refer to the government's failure to address this, and uh, not make any remarks about the failure of his himself and his party to actually support a process. Well, we saw this act before, though, haven't we? I mean, when the, the Trudeau government was first elected back in 2015, uh, as we know, one of the promises that uh, the then-candidate uh, Trudeau made uh, when he was running for the big job was he remember the statement, the bold statement, uh, this is the last federal election that's going to be run as first past the post. He was, electoral reform was going to be something he did, and he did, to his credit, a former committee and appointed one of his MPs as the chair of that committee. But that thing fizzled. And and then leader, of course, uh, Andrew Scheer uh, made a big deal about that. Uh, but the reality, of course, is that, is that it was the opposition parties that pretty much scuttled it because they didn't want to play ball and they wouldn't show up for the committee meetings, et cetera. So uh, you got to read beyond the headlines to really find out what's going on in Ottawa, don't you? You do. And it's, it partly, I think, explains why Canadians are by and large so frustrated by politics. It doesn't seem to be politics. It seems to be a case of always of pinning the, pinning the tail on the donkey. And it, it's tiring, that game. Uh, you know, certainly most children, by the time they're eight, are past it. And I think Canadians expect the politicians should be past it, too. But we can't. Well, it goes back. Yeah, it just goes back to that, as you say, extremely partisan atmosphere that's permeating and, and I guess some would say dominating uh, politics today. And it's uh, it, it creates a sense of inertia where it, I, I guess we all find frustrating. <laughs> Professor, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this. Uh, have a great Canada Day weekend, and we'll talk again soon. Same to you. Take care. Take care. That's uh, Professor Wayne Petrosi from uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So imagine you're a store owner, shop on a, on a main street in, in your community. Uh, and, and okay, you want business. And one of the best ways to generate business is walk-in business, right? So your storefront, you're going to put something in the window. Uh, if it's a women's uh, clothing store, you're going to put you know dresses, jackets, whatever you're doing this time of year. Uh, if it's a sporting goods store, there's, there's your baseball bat and your hockey stick, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're in the cannabis business, which is legal now, and they do have storefronts, uh, current laws say you can't put anything in the window. You can't advertise. You can't even tell them uh, what products you have. Uh, and that may be changing pretty soon. Uh, the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario is now considering amending regulations that require cannabis stores to ensure that pot cannot be seen from the exterior. In other words, you, you can't have any walk-in sales because they don't know what's in the front window. They don't know what the products are. And the people in that business are saying it's about time this happened. Joining us to talk about the change, which we hope is uh, is going to be forthcoming, is uh, Mitchell Osak. Mitchell, of course, is the CEO for Quanta Consulting Incorporated. Uh, Mitchell, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bill. I, I, I kind of drew the analogy with the, the current regulations as they are right now uh, with the cannabis industry. Basically, the government is saying, uh, go ahead there, flourish, and, and we hope you do well. But they're tying one hand behind their back, aren't they? 
Uh, absolutely. This this sort of uh, corporate or regulatory schizophrenia has been apparent since adult use cannabis was legalized back in 2018. They want the government wants to encourage safe and secure and reasonable consumption, but at the but at the end of the day, they're actually creating unsafe conditions for consumers as well as employees of uh, cannabis stores. Well, yeah, that's let's talk about that aspect of it too. For, I'm talking about displaying the product, which I still think is important. Uh, you know, that's retail 101. You know, you let people know uh, what's available to them, and and that's how you generate walk-in business. But if you're going to cover everything up, you don't know what's going on inside the store, do you? No, absolutely, you don't. And and not only does it create unsafe conditions, and there's been many uh, robberies and assaults within these stores. But also, it's not a very welcoming environment. You can imagine, you know, if you're a senior citizen or a woman, who wants to walk into a store where you don't even know who's even in the store once you walk into it. So um, in in the government's, you know, interest in, in protecting youth and so on and not publicizing cannabis, they're actually making it unsafe for consumers as well as retailers. Uh, and of course, there's the possibility of the people working in the store too. I mean, if somebody has some evil intentions about robbery or something like that, and it's, it's not just a, a, an abstract idea, it's happened. Uh, you can't see what's going on. And and that, that, that would make the clerk very vulnerable and almost paranoid, I'd think. Yeah, um, it's happened in many cases, both in Ontario, around Canada, including Alberta. Alberta's changed their regulations to reduce the opacity uh, of the windows in the United States, people have been murdered in cannabis rob cannabis store robberies. So it is a, a serious and present danger, uh, both to the community as well as employees. And there's no reason why it needs to happen. Well, exactly. And I, I guess it goes back, you know, maybe I don't want to rekindle the debate about, you know, should it be legalized or not? That's been done. Okay, we're, we're where we are right now. So if you disagree with it, God bless you. If you agree with it, God bless you. But here's the deal. Uh, you've you've got to maximize the opportunity for this industry to flourish, and uh, uh, it's not it's not doing as well as it could right now because of this. And I understand at the time there was a big debate. Well, we don't want this near schools. We don't want uh, kids, you know, walking out on their lunch hour and going over to the to the, the cannabis store. Uh, well, there are rules and regulations in place for that. Okay, and and I don't hear of any stories where there's some egregious uh, misuse of that. It seems to be happening. Uh, and and besides, as 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 I've done some explaining and talking to some people about this. The products themselves are usually in plain envelopes, all right? You, you can advertise and just say, we have this. Uh, I don't think any of that stuff is going to lure people in there that, who shouldn't be in there. It's really just advertising the products which which are going to be available. You can't do that if, if everything is frosted over on the glass. You're 100% right, Bill. Um, this is, it's Shakespearean. It's, it's much ado about nothing. The packaging, if anyone's ever... Uh, bought cannabis products from a cannabis store, the packaging is very similar to, to tobacco. Packaging is not enticing people to consume the product, let alone overconsume it. Um, so it really, um, from a consumer experience standpoint, and especially communication of the product features and the scent, um, it's actually quite lacking. And in a lot of cases, the lack of proper branding or proper packaging is actually encouraging overuse. And we see that with higher THC levels. People don't realize what they're buying. And also, it, it really is hamstringing both retailers and licensed producers to communicate the, the features of their product. And just like you and I can walk into a liquor store 
even see from outside a liquor store of what's available um, and know what we're buying inside. Cannabis consumers as well as retailers have no options around that. And I don't think that's a safe, responsible and business friendly way of selling this legal product in Ontario. I've mentioned the story before, but very quickly, I'll just cover it again. When I was just a little kid, uh, and my dad would you know, go into the LCBO uh, the odd time, they weren't allowed to display products in the store. Uh, if you wanted a, a, a bottle of rum or a bottle of wine, you had to fill out a form and, and put check the box, yes, I want this, and they would go into the back of the store, get it, and bring it out to the customer. Uh, I, I like to think we're past those puritanical days, but uh, it, it just seems that they, they've pretty much imposed that same mindset on the cannabis industry right now. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's nanny state kind of behavior. And what's what's shocking to me, as well as many consumers and many in the industry, is that if you look at the data, like alcohol in so many ways and I'm a consumer of alcohol, is so much more dangerous from a drinking and driving, domestic abuse, health health reasons perspective than cannabis is. Yet, you know, we as, as you talked about, we can go in and have some of the best retail experiences in Ontario and LCBOs. You're not even close to that when it comes to cannabis. And it's, and it's just a shame because it's really about, in, in, in my mind, you know, um, doing well by all stakeholders and and creating positive experiences for everybody if it was a little more welcoming in many of these retail stores i would gather that many of them wouldn't be on in the financial straits they are right now well the industry is is doing okay from what i'm told but not as well as it could uh because of that you know i mean when it was legalized and you and i've had this discussion in the past mitchell that uh, you know they were buying huge properties and saying okay that's going to be a processing plant there's going to be one here one here uh, and we're not even talking about the retail end of it we're just talking about the production well that's cooled off considerably uh and it's it's finding its own level but but if you want it to succeed and i know the government wants to because they like the revenue they're generating from it, uh, you've got to give them every opportunity. And and I really don't think that if they're allowed to display products in their window, that that's going to get somebody to, to who's walking past on Queen Street in Toronto to say, you know, I was never going to do that, but boy, that's a pretty package. I'm going to go in there. Uh, that's that's not the situation at all. And I think people are being naive if they think that's that's the cause and effect that's going to happen here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember taking my kids in, into Yorkdale when they were very young and walking by a, Vic, a Victoria's Secret store. And you have scantily clad, you know, pictures of models and so on and displays. You know, is that, you know, what we want displayed to, you know, society as a whole? So when I compare something like that and even the LCBO experience, which I think is fairly positive with, with cannabis, I, I just – you know, shake my head. The The other issue, I think, is that, yes, this is a challenging yet large industry, and we want to um, give every operator the chance to do well, but we don't want to hamstring them in, through self-inflicted regulatory rules that really don't do anything positive around consumption um, and protecting youth, which is the point you just, you just made earlier. Um, the, the truth of the matter is, a lot of these retailers in Ontario are small businesses. They're not corporate chains. They're not huge multinational companies. They're mom and pop operators. 
And when we really think about how these rules are going to be impacting business, we can't forget the fact that many of these um, wheat stores are owned by our neighbors. They're owned by our parents and our brothers and sisters. And why should we you know, have them have one of their arms tied behind their backs because of ridiculous regulations? Do you see this uh, sense of practicality that you and I are talking about now uh, affecting the decision? Are they going to modernize this and are they going to see the light here? I really believe they are, because if you look at a lot of the data, um, teenage consumption, whether that's under the age of majority or just over, of, of cannabis has not gone up since legalization. You know, the world hasn't come to an end. Exactly to your point earlier, you know, we can take a step back and after four plus years say, you know what, we can loosen things up a bit. Alberta last year, their Alberta Gaming Liquor and Cannabis Commission uh, decided to enact new rules, which took out the window coverings. Um, so there's no reason why Ontario can't do that. You know, Albertans, the world hasn't come to an end when they allow uh, consumers to look into cannabis stores. We should be allowed the same thing in Ontario. It's a controlled substance, uh, and and that was one of the the things that, of course, uh, was was part of the initial process when they they legalized the substance. And the con- but the controls are already in place. Um, I mean, you don't need to, to blacken the front windows of of these businesses. That's that's not part of the deal, you know. Uh, like you say, you, you can walk into an LCBO. I mean, even if you, you want to consume tobacco, I like to think everybody's smarter than that now, but uh, it's a controlled substance and those controls are in place. And as it is with here too, not everybody can walk into these stores. That's one of the controls. Uh, certainly not everybody can buy it. Uh, and that's one of the controls. So I, I, you're right. This seems to be an overreach that, and maybe an oversight too. And that, that, that I think these guys are going to look at the gaming commission and simply say, oops, uh, yeah, we got that wrong. I'm hoping so. We have a great model in the LCBO in terms of what's allowed and what's not allowed. You can sample products in the LCBO and, and you know, there's all the issues around drinking and driving. Why can't we, and this is a rhetorical question, why can't we sample cannabis products if we can sample alcohol? Why can't we have different packaging and different branding? To me, there's no difference. And, you know, you might say I'm biased, but the, but the data and the research is on my side, on our side. You know, cannabis is a much more benign substance than alcohol is, full stop. Um, anybody who knows both of those and who take an objective, sensible view of the data will come to that conclusion. So I'd love to see Ontario evolve to what we have in the LCBO, which you and I know is not exactly – you know, Nike town in terms of marketing and access to to product. I think it's a very sensible approach and cannabis ought to get there as soon as possible. Well, we'll see how they respond to this. Uh, Mitchell, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Mitchell Osak is uh, the CEO for Quanta Consulting Incorporated. And uh, we continue our discussions uh, about the cannabis industry and, and how it's it seems to be finding its level. But, uh, you know, a little government assistance by easing some of those restrictions would go a long way. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of concerns about uh, mortgages qualifying for one certainly is, is a big problem. Uh, even renewing them, though, because of the interest rate hikes that we've had over the last uh, year and a half or so, uh, are causing a lot of problem for people that are homeowners and would like to continue to be homeowners. So one of the elements that's happening here and what, what some lending institutions are doing now uh, is offering uh, extended mortgages. I mean, the average mortgage is, what, 25 years. Uh now they're talking about 60, 70, even 90-year mortgages. Uh, I, 
not so sure that's such a good idea. There's, there's got to be a discussion here about whether, you know, it may sound appealing to you initially, but is it really good for you in the long run? Uh, get the answer from our next guest. Uh, Brian Hogman's been on the program many times before. Uh, he's a broker with uh, Mission 35 Mortgages. He's the author of the book, How to Get Mortgage Free Really Effing Fast, uh, the book on how to pay off your mortgage in Canada in 10 simple steps. I'm not so sure if this thing I hear about extending the uh, the amortization is one of those simple steps. Brian, good to hear from you again. Hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I am working on uh, the sequel to that book. There might be 11 steps now, so <laughs> given what's happening in the market. So. The revised edition. This is a guy who changes with the times, people. Uh, let, let's <laughs> talk a little bit about this whole idea here, mostly of the fixed rate mortgages, et cetera. Uh, but if you extend that, as some banks and some lending institutions are doing right now, from from the, the average, which is about 25 years, uh, to 60 or 70 years, uh, first of all, the, I guess the allure to that is, well, good, that, that's going to keep my, my payments a lot lower, uh, which sounds pretty good initially. But let's talk about the implications of doing something like that. Yeah, well, it, it, essentially, these these static payment mortgages uh, are the ones that are being affected. They're fixed payment variables. And essentially what happens, it almost puts you on a never-never plan, right? You're not paying it off. And what ends up happening is your mortgage is actually ballooning in a lot of cases. So when the original payments might have been set up, you know, one, two, three years ago at lower interest rates, now that the interest rates have gone up, uh, just so everybody understands what's happening is that the monthly payment stays the same, but it's not enough to actually pay down the balance. Um, and what ends up happening too is this really hurts Canadians. It does. It doesn't hurt in the short term, like you say, Bill. But where it hurts later is because typically uh, most Canadians' homes is their biggest savings account. Where this will affect us too is uh, Canadians will not be able to take out equity from their home if they have an eighty or ninety year mortgage. Um, to maybe pay off some debts that they've accumulated over time, some bigger expenses over time, some life changes over time. It's really going to affect that uh, that savings account that Canadians have. Well, and I know for, for, for to back here, first time home buyers, you know, and you get your mortgage and you're really happy about that, and uh, you start paying the things off. And about a year later, of course, you get your first financial statement. It's always depressing when you look at that and say, "That's all I've paid off." Uh, because it's it's backloaded, right? I mean, initially you're paying interest, 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 and a little principal, and that changes over the course of time. But as I read this, Brian, uh, if you were to extend that to say sixty or seventy years, as some people are requesting, all you're ever doing is paying interest. You're not paying any principal off against the house. You're absolutely right, I, and it's actually worse than that because, like you said, the average amortization is twenty five years. In some cases, we'll see a thirty year amortization. But what's actually happening is what's driving these amortizations to the 60, 70, and 90-year point is the mortgage is getting bigger. Um, so instead of getting smaller, it's almost like a reverse mortgage. So not only is uh, the payment not enough to cover the interest, the interest is more than the payment. So that's why if you owed $500,000, for example, and you see one of these types of mortgages, essentially that mortgage balance is going up to 501, 502. So it's truly that that never, never plan. I think what people need to look at here is anytime that you get something in the mail, um, I know sometimes we want to hide under the blankets and not look at it. Please <laughs> open it. Please look at it because it's telling you, you know, you may not feel it because your payment's not moving, but what that piece of mail is telling you from your financial institution is that your amortization is getting bigger, bigger, and bigger. And it's compounding a problem because it may not affect you today. You may not feel it, but come renewal, you will definitely feel it, unfortunately. 
So talk to us about flexibility here. I got a little bit, a couple of minutes left there, I guess. Uh, are, are the institutions understanding where people are with, and I'm talking not about qualifying, but I'm talking about renewal of mortgages right now, because you're right. I mean, if, if you're coming up at the end of a five-year term, uh, what you paid five years ago and what you're going to have to pay for renewal are, are two very different animals. And it, it's frightening for an awful lot of people. Are, are the banks uh, being uh, sympathetic? Are they offering options here? Yeah, I think, you know, what we're seeing is most people can afford the renewal. They're not smiling about it or happy about it, but they can afford it. I would say in those in those unique circumstances where people are in a tough situation, banks will do a workout plan. We've worked with uh, some of our mortgage default insurance companies. They're called like Sage in Canada Guarantee, and they are sympathetic to it. You know, we've we saw one situation where we had a single mom, two kids. Uh, some unfortunate life circumstances with rates going up as well, too. And uh, they were able to actually add on about $30,000 onto the mortgage to help her put in an in-law suite to subsidize the mortgage. Um, very, very, very unique case. But it does speak to, I think, uh, you know, the big bad banks. They, they're they not in the business of taking people's homes. Uh, this was not a desired um you know, outcome for them specifically. So, you know, if you are in a, a dire situation like that, I think there are options for you. You just have to make sure that you don't, again, I like using the term hide under the blankets, make sure you ask and, and people will be uh, able to help. Uh, challenging times to be sure, but uh, there's, there are options out there. <laughs> Brian, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Have a great Canada Day weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. You too. You take care. Brian Hogman. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.